by the Holy Spirit. All right. Uh, This passage breaks into two parts. We have, first of all, the certainty of the apostolic message, verses 16 to 18, uh, that is followed by the nature and function of inspired prophecy, verses 19 to 21. All right. Let's see if we can get started here. Here we go. All right. There. There's our first uh, section, the certainty of the apostolic message. We see in this passage that Peter's zeal for the growth of his audience is rooted in the validity of the message he brings about Christ's return. I don't know about you, that strikes me as something very... The thoughts are connected in a very different way than what we typically hear today. When we talk about uh, Jesus' return, we automatically go into millennial debates. You know, pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, oat-mill, so forth. All of that. And we discuss the millennium. and, And we lose, we lose so much. Of the apostolic witness about the return of Christ by going in that direction. And uh, here, um, so, Peter's zeal for the growth of his audience is rooted in the validity of the apostolic message concerning the return of Christ. Okay? He mentions uh, the character and contents of the message of the apostles in verse 16, and then kind of the cooperation with the transfiguration of Jesus in verse 17 and 18. Let's look at this. Verse um, 16, the character and content of the message. Notice verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Okay. Um, He's having to deal with false teachers here already. Considering their claims, Peter centers attention on the ministry of the apostles. And the stress is upon the trustworthy nature of their message. His primary assertion is this. He says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's given a, a, um, a disclaimer, a vigorous disclaimer. We did not follow cleverly, cleverly devised myths. But now here's the, uh, the real message. And he, it's a reference to his own personal experience. We made known to you, but we were eyewitnesses. Okay, of his majesty. All right, let's notice the vigorous disclaimer first. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. All right. Uh, So this he's talking about what apostolic preaching is not. It's not this. Uh, The noun myths, of course, we think uh, legends, fables, 
of fictional tales in contrast to true accounts, historical accounts, things that really happened. He calls them uh, cleverly devised myths. That is, devised, having been devised by human wisdom and subtly and slyly concocted and motivated by personal interests. Okay, he said, we didn't do that. And Peter, I'm not doing it now. <clears throat> it's uh, one, per, one writer observed that uh, his language of this cleverly devised myths was an epitaph sometimes applied to a quack doctor. Well, you know, we've probably always heard people talk about someone, well, he's just a quack. You know, someone in the medical field. <laughs> so, anyway, so uh, this uh, particular com- uh, um, commentator said, uh, cleverly devised myths or something, an epitaph applied to a quack doctor. Now, we may understand uh, Peter's expression as a devastating contrast between the trustworthy teaching of the apostles and the deceptive fables of the false teachers. And he says they're cleverly devised. But, he says, and he insists, excuse me, He insists that the preaching of the apostles, notice the wording, did not follow or pursue uh, such myths as the authority of their message. He says, we did not follow those myths when? When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He succinctly puts forth the apostolic message. Um, He says, we did not follow the myths when we gave you that message. He says, and we, you know, when we made known to you. This is, uh, when we made known is one word in the original, and it's characteristically used of the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. Give you a couple of references. Romans 16, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. And uh, <clears throat> notice he says here, um, uh, is often uh, used of declaring a mystery of God's counsel. You know, we, we're making known something to you that has been hidden for ages. All right, uh, so what is the message then? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a summary. There's the gospel message. That's it. Not even a full sentence. (laughs) The message. Um, The power and coming uh, denotes two aspects of, uh, of one concept. Uh, this, this, the coming of the Lord Jesus is uh, one of the most frequently used terms in the letters of the New Testament about the return of Christ. Uh, it is, I don't know, 
y'all may run across this in your Sunday school lessons or elsewhere. It's the word parousia, um, translated here, coming. And it was often, uh, in Roman culture, it was used, commonly used when there was going to be a royal visit. You know, the emperor or some governor was coming to a certain city or district. And all these special preparations were made. And now Paul takes that common cultural word and uses it about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, The New Testament writers enshrined the Christian hope of the return of Jesus with this word. Okay. Basically, he says uh, the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. Um, You've probably heard this many times before, but that power dunamis, we get our word dynamite, uh, English word from that original. So the power, the dunamis, and the parousia, the coming, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we made known to you, he says. This was not a cleverly devised myth. All right. Notice how he, the contrast. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The counterpart to the negative, we did not follow these myths. The counterpart to that is we were eyewitnesses. Um, uh, the language here is, we saw it with our own eyes. You know, we didn't hear somebody tell us and say, oh, that's a good story. I think I'll follow that. No, we saw it with our own eyes. And we made it known. That's what we made known to you. Okay. Let me pause just a minute and um, just a I'm assuming you're familiar with the language of eschatological or eschatology, you know. Um, you know, it has to do with the last things. And, but as a theological word, it includes a number of things. What does the Bible say about death? What does it say about the resurrection? What does it say about judgment? It's not just which millennial view you have. Jesus is coming back. But it's all of these last things uh, contained under that heading of eschatology. All right. Just a footnote. All right. Let's see. This idea, uh, but we were eyewitnesses, is this is the only place this particular word is used in the New Testament. Uh, Peter's use of it implies that he was conscious that he and those with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, we were not. We were privileged spectators. We got to see it. We were there. Uh, we closely observed. We made careful inspection. And see, they were reliable eyewitnesses of what. Of what? Look at the end of verse 16. Of his majesty. Of his. Whose? The Lord Jesus Christ. His majesty. 
Um, this, this word majesty is just used a, a few times. Uh, points to uh, the true nature of God. As in um, Luke 9 verse 43. The apostle write, We and all were astonished at what? The love of God. No. We were all astonished at the compassion of God. They were astonished at the majesty. The majesty of God. Luke 9 verse 43. Uh, Think of the kafafel at uh, Ephesus in Acts 19. Where they have, you know, the temple of Artemis. And... uh, There was a riot, you know, started by the apostolic band. <laughs> they had to flee in a hurry. But what was the, about what was the riot? Had to do with the temple. <clears throat> the great goddess Artemis might be counted as nothing and would be deposed from her. Here's the word. Magnificence. She would lose her majesty Therefore, we're going to riot in the streets and drive you apostles out of here. You're taking away her majesty. And say, there's someone else that is magnificent. And it's not in stone in the temple in Ephesus, the goddess Artemis. No. Okay. All right, well, thankfully, Artemis has been deposed of her magnificence. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see here. All right, how about the uh, cooperation of their message, verses 17 and 18. So we have, uh, notice the word for, verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory of This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So what we have now is evidence justifying the preceding assertion about the apostolic message. Okay. The apostolic message, again, was not cleverly devised myths. No, but it was about the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and we were eyewitnesses. To his majesty. All right, let's look at this. Um, Peter cited the transfiguration as an event that lay within his own experience. He was an eyewitness of that. And he can give it a firm authentication of his message concerning Christ returning in glory. Um, You know, outside Matthew, Mark, and Luke... This is the only place where the transfiguration is mentioned. I don't know. That surprised me. I thought I would, you know, it would be other places too. But this is the only one outside the Gospels, the account in the Gospels. Um, Let's look at this. The Father's bestowal of honor and glory. The first part of verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Okay. Here's an historical event and, um, where God the Father audibly honored His Son. Remember this? 
Remember, this is my beloved son language. All right. So the father <clears throat> gave honor and glory to his son. And then there was this divine voice of identification and approval. There also. Um, he said, and Peter mentions it, you know, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. What was that? What did the voice say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There was an audible voice on that mountaintop and Peter was there. He heard it. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this was not a subjective feeling by Peter. I, I just feel so tingling in my stomach every time I'm around Jesus. Or every time his name is mentioned. <laughs> None of that stuff. No, he was there. He saw it. He heard the voice. It was an objective reality. Notice the voice and the voice. Uh, this audible voice is the only, only time in the New Testament this construction is used. It, is, it was so unique. Okay, the voice was born by... Notice this, the majestic glory. Kind of a reverential paraphrase for God. And again, it only occurs here. But notice, notice again. The voice was born to him by. Notice how Peter puts it. The majestic glory. He characterizes God's glory as being, as fully becoming and proper. It was a greatly befitting glory, so to speak. From His glory, Father's glory, Jesus received glory. Okay. Quiz, pop quiz. <clears throat> what are the three instances in the Gospels where an audible voice from heaven spoke to Jesus. There are three times. <laughs> well, the first one was his baptism. Okay, remember that one. The transfiguration. And when certain, this is the third one is, um, I couldn't remember it, but when certain Greeks during the Passion Week requested an interview with Jesus. John 12, verse 20. Let me turn to that. Just a, an odd one that kind of threw me. John 12 and verse uh, 20. I'm sorry. John, yeah, 12. I'm in, I'm in the wrong place. 12 and 20. Thinking of an audible voice. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat dies, that sort of thing. Uh, he goes on. <clears throat> Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. There it is. The third instance. It said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Okay. All right. Well, a little uh, trivia there. Three instances where there were audible voices to Jesus. All right. And notice here, uh, what was the message? What did the audible voice say? Again, this is my beloved son, son with whom I am well pleased. Here, the father declares his approval of his son. His incarnate son. I am pleased with him. I am well pleased. Um, the, the language here, and well pleased, carries a very strong element of emotional satisfaction and delight in the person of whom it's spoken. All right. All right. Uh, mm. you know, I just wonder how many children wish they had ever heard something like that from their parents. Well, verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Peter, what he's underlining the presence of human witnesses when the voice came, you know, he's saying, I was there. There were others there and we heard this voice. It was not a sound, not thunder rumbling. It was a voice speaking. There were audible words that we could understand. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice. Again, Peter is stressing his own personal presence among those who heard. <clears throat> you know, he's already mentioned verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses. And now he's saying we were ear witnesses, <laughs> ear and eye. We were ear witnesses. We heard that voice from heaven. It was born from heaven. You know, the gospel accounts say that there was a, a voice came out of a bright cloud. It seems that some people think that Peter is identifying that cloud with the great Shekinah glory cloud. You know, the presence of God. Shekinah comes from a root Shekan, meaning to dwell. The Shekinah glory, the glory that dwells there. Okay. All right. And the event took place where? On the holy mountain at the end of verse 18. Uh, you know, it seemed to be a particular place as a kind of a hallowed spot in the mind of Peter. Maybe he was thinking of other places in Israel, other times in Israel's history where uh, God revealed himself on a mountain. You can probably think of some. You know, think of the great Exodus event and uh, Mount Sinai quaking. And Moses goes up there and receives the, the uh, law of God. Think of Joshua 5, verse 15. Uh, Calvin uh, comments here, he says, Wherever God appears... He sanctifies everything by the savor 
of his presence. I just, I just like that quote. <laughs> you know, I, I, we, we tend to use that word savor for tastes, you know. But uh, Calvin uses it as the savor of his presence. Wherever God appears, God sanctifies everything by the savor of his presence. You know, uh, Peter saw this as a, a positive pledge, a foretaste of the return in glory of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, well... Yes, we need to flip the screen. There. What about the certainty of prophetic revelation? Verses 19 to 21. Notice how, <clears throat> given those, that scene of majestic glory, uh, the transfiguration, and he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. How about that? More fully Yes, he says, more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Oh, boy. Again, notice your coordinating word in verse 19. And so he's kind of giving a second ground of assurance to the power and coming of Jesus. Um, verses 16 to 18, the first ground was that of eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Okay? Now the second ground is an appeal to Scripture itself. And Peter points out the character of the prophetic word. He presents the present function of biblical prophecy and then uh, stresses the origin of prophecy. Let's look at those three things. First of all, the character of the prophetic word. Verse 19, the first part. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Hmm. More fully confirmed. All right. He says, we have, as an abiding possession, the prophetic word uh, that... Prophetic word would uh, embrace the Old Testament as a whole, uh, not simply the prophets, okay? Uh, <clears throat> but the other Bible writers, you know, were often called prophets as well, but they were inspired, all of them. The adjective prophetic here, the prophetic word, is only used here and in Romans 16, verse 26. Just two times. Once by Paul, once by Peter. And it describes the word as having the character of prophecy. Um, this or the language is the the prophetic word. OK, and he says uh, more fully we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That is, uh, it's made more stable, more reliable, more firm now. Um, he says, we have another source of assurance, not just the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, just a handful of them. But we also have the prophetic word. It's richer. It's more explicit. It's a fuller testimony of the glory of the Messiah. It is a surer base 
basis for faith. Again, um, Peter, think, think original audience. And Peter's own life will be taken shortly. There's so much uncertainty that the original audience had. Are the Romans going to find us? Is Nero going to get you and throw you in the arena before the jeering crowds? You know, the uncertainty with which they lived or if they were ever found in a Bible study or a quiet worship service, they're done for. Peter is giving them assurance, assurance. They needed it, y'all. You know, are we just a bunch of quacks? Are we weirdos? Is there something wrong with us that we don't see? And Peter is shoring up, strengthening them. Only God, only God knew what awaited them. The audience of Peter's letter. Would they be captured? Would they be tortured? Okay. The character of the prophetic word. It is something more sure. All right. Then that's followed by the. Team. <clears throat> he says uh, to which. You, this prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Okay, so having pointed out the certainty conveyed by the prophetic word, Peter once again stresses the very practical value in the believer's daily life. Okay. Um, he indicates uh, an appropriate attitude there, the appropriate attitude toward the Scripture. And in the coming, um, hmm, whoever typed this up, misplaced, misread that. <laughs> the, the appropriate attitude, yeah, no, I'm sorry. The, it's awkwardly, whoever typed this thing, uh, the coming replacement of the prophetic lamp. Okay. Let's stumble as best we can through that. <laughs> the end of verse 19. He says, to which, okay, verse 19, to which you do well to pay attention. It carries a note of approval, picturing them as actively turning their minds to the prophetic word as an object of interest in faith. And he says, you do well. You do well. Your continued attention to the word is a good thing. Something that is rightly and correctly done. Um, this word, this apostolic word he's saying is reliable, trustworthy. It is no wonder that people are embracing it. You do well. Believers should adopt a positive, uh, a posture of constant readiness to hear the word, to believe the word. To apply the word. Then he gives this a simile. It is pay attention as to a lamp 
shining in a dark place. Um, y'all all week, um, well, a couple of days studying this, I have had this picture in my, it's a, dove, a deer hunting story from North Mississippi in my mind. <clears throat> and uh, had a, a friend in the church, he was a deacon, and he was a forester. And he had uh, a nice uh, acreage up in North uh, Mississippi with a cabin on it. And uh, periodically, you know, he'd get some of the guys, and we'd go up there and hunt for a couple of days. And uh, I remember my first time there, I mean, y'all, we're on the backside of nowhere. Uh, there is one electrical line, you know, coming in from any pavement that you can't see with binoculars. It's just dirt roads and houses with chimneys and smoke coming out. And I don't know how many whiskey stills are in those woods. He would always tell us, don't go down there. <laughs> You'll get in trouble. So we're anyway, we're in the middle of nowhere. And so my uh, the first night uh, hunting, I just thought I just, I just I may not see a deer, but I just want to savor being in the woods and sit here. Well, I sat a little long and uh, it was just dark when I'm stumbling out of the woods. I get back out to the road and I'm wondering now, which way is the house? You know, so anyway, I started walking, and to this day, I still remember a light. Y'all, there were none to be seen in those dark woods, but there was a light about a quarter mile, half mile down the road, that dirt road. Well, that was the cabin. That was it. But I just remember how I felt seeing a light. That was welcoming. My friends are there. They're probably, you know, thinking, well, Michael got lost again. When's he going to show up? Do we need to go out and get him? But that was, that was like a home. It was uh, warmth. It was freezing cold. Safety, food, camaraderie. It was a light. Okay, that's my story. Uh, but he says, as a light. As a light shining in a dark place. Uh, he's picking up on the language of several psalms, you know, about the word of God being or being associated with light or lamps, that sort of thing. Uh, psalm 19, verse 8, for instance. A couple of times in Psalm 119, we have that. So it is shining, a lamp shining in a dark place. Y'all, this adjective, dark is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It, uh, the root actually means dry and parched. But here, it has the, the idea of that which is murky, that which is dirty and clouded kind of thing. <clears throat> A condition of dirt due to neglect. He says that the light is shining in a, a dark, a murky place. Uh, Peter does not identify the dark place. Uh, you know, opinions vary, as you can well imagine. It does seem, uh, please, I'm trying to qualify as best I can. It does seem uh, most commentators take just the natural view that he's talking about the world apart from Christ is a dark place. 
It needs the light of the gospel. And this dark place in darkness is regularly used in the New Testament of the world. It's a place of darkness. All right. We belong to the God who is light. His Son is the light of the world. The gospel brings light into darkened hearts and minds. All right, as a lamp shining in a dark place. Notice um, the rest of verse 19. This language, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Hmm. (laughs) Diligent use of the prophetic lamp will be needed only until the day dawns and the morning star arises. Until. We're in a period of waiting. We're waiting for that great and final day to appear when the Lord Jesus Christ Himself returns. Uh, Of course, the precise time is not known to us. We are waiting. Uh, The day... uh, And the language is used, dawns, until the day dawns. It's the only time this word dawning is used in the New Testament. It means to shine through. It's the the picture of the first gleams of uh, coming daybreak, where the sun is rising on the distant horizon. And just, just gleams of light are coming, piercing the darkness. And then Peter adds this further aspect, and the morning star rises in our hearts. This morning star only occurs here in the New Testament, and it literally means to shine through, to shine through. The event signals the coming of day, and the morning star precedes the dawn. Okay, And then he adds these words kind of a subjective response where where's this the morning star the, until the day dawns and the morning star rises where in your heart in your hearts um, it seems that peter's concern is the inner attitude of those who are awaiting the glorious day of christ's return Remember their circumstances, quite unlike ours. They're a persecuted minority from this monster on the throne of the Roman Empire, Nero. He wants to hunt them down and enjoy their deaths in the arena. They need light even to shine within them. In their hearts as they look forward beyond what they can see, beyond Nero, beyond the legions of Rome, beyond the searches, beyond the rumors, the stories of what happened to their friends in the the arena, to the jeering crowds. They need to see beyond that to that time when the morning star arises in their hearts. Y'all, that's a living hope. Not a hope so, but it is a living hope that brings life. It has a transforming impact upon our daily lives to live with hope. 
You know, I would imagine every one of us in this room have had occasion to visit uh, people maybe in the hospital or somewhere where something tragic has happened and that person has given up hope. They may not say those words, but just visiting with them is so evident. There's nothing else left for them. Their life, in effect, is over. They've given up. All right. So he has uh, not only spoken of the function, the character of the prophetic word, the function of prophecy, now and the origin of the prophetic word. Let's look at it. Verses 20 and 21. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God is the source of Scripture. The apostolic writers were simply the conduit. Okay, they were not the source. They were just the writers. Let's look at this. Uh, uh, There's a comprehensive negation about Scripture that no prophecy ever came from someone's own interpretation. And then the, that stated, verse 20, and then the ground or basis of it is found in verse 21. For, notice your connecting word, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right. All right. Well, y'all, I have just discovered I did not print the last page of my notes. <laughs> well, well. <clears throat> this might be a good place to stop. <laughs> well, uh, Lord willing, we will pick up. I'm writing myself a note or I'll forget it before I go to my office. Pick up. Thank you, my friend. You're exactly right. (laughs) My friend there, who will go unnamed, is uh, alluding to the mess that my office is. And she doesn't think that I could find it in my office. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Oh, me. Mary Louise. Uh, I'm never letting you in my office again. (laughs) Okay, well, y'all, that's uh, Lord willing. uh, We'll pick up there uh, next week, okay? Let's pray and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this book that uh, you have given to your church. And uh, thank you that we get to study it as a group of people. A portion of your church and not just privately and silently, but um, even for the banter here. Thank you for our fellowship that surrounds what you've said. Give, Father, please give to us an increasing appetite for what you've said and a growing understanding 
of what you've said. That we might live lives that please you and bring honor to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okie doke.